Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, peeps and creeps. Let me introduce you to a new true crime podcast, True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from con artists to serial killers. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. No, really. She's heard none of them. Hey! Ugh. <laughs> I guess that's true. Each week, Kristen tells me a new case with excellent victim-centered storytelling. We laugh, we cry, we get scrunch face, but we always stay respectful of the victims and their story. While ruthlessly dragging criminals. Flaming them. <laughs> We've covered everything, from con artist Anna Delvey, a personal favorite of mine, to unsolved crimes like the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. With a five-star rating on iTunes, go check us out, because we're probably that true crime podcast you've been looking for. You can find True Crime Creepers wherever you get your podcast. New episodes every Thursday. Bye, peeps and creeps. The Original California Cult. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. Back in the 1950s, when Synanon came to public attention, it was a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program. I found an environment that was a loving environment. I found a place that was humane, and I found a place that was very firm. All of the things that I needed to change my behavior. The organization is composed of what Synanon calls dope fiends, squares, and delinquent children, punks. Synanon educates, clothes, and feeds its members. And in return, most of them turn over their personal wealth and work for Synanon. Today we're going to be talking about something that even if you don't recognize the name, you'll recognize the stories, certainly the tactics, some of the habits, themes, and at the very least, it will touch on rehabilitation and wellness culture that I feel like we're immersed in every day. You'll recognize the story because we hear it over and over through lots of fringe religions gone mainstream and wellness initiatives turned oppressive. We're talking about the original West Coast insane fucking cult posing as sober wellness, Synanon. And I hope I'm saying that right. Some people say Synanon. Some people say Synanon. I'm going to go with Synanon. Addiction has always been a really complicated diagnosis and to nobody's surprise has been around since humans have been making mind altering substances. The Bible references Noah's drinking habits and intoxication, the use of opium in Syria in the 7th century BC, cocoa leaves in the Andes, to Chinese cannabis, to on and on and on. 
And it was always this mysterious thing to be an addict. Even up until the 1950s, the general idea of most addiction was, in medical communities, that it could not be cured. If it was treated at all, it was by doctors and hospitals, and more often than not, those suffering from addiction eventually were sent to jail. Until Synanon. Though it was not the first rehab or structure around wellness, Synanon did a ton to convince the American public that addicts could be saved. It really started the idea of sponsorship, that recovery could happen, and that those in recovery could help other people in recovery. And while there were good things about Synanon, it was founded on the shoulders of Charles Dietrich and became a cult unlike anything LA had ever seen. So it all started with this guy, Charles Dietrich, a sales exec from Ohio who moved to SoCal after his first divorce. After spending almost 20 years as a nomadic alcoholic, he remarried in 1956 and, again, at the bequest of his probably very frustrated wife, gave AA a try. Second marriage didn't last, but the program did, and he quickly became a huge promoter of the Alcoholics Anonymous lifestyle. The one thing Dietrich didn't like was that AA didn't accept other substance abusers. Now, there was, at the time, a Narcotics Anonymous in LA, but it was still very disorganized and rarely met. So in 1958, Dietrich took part in a UCLA study that involved LSD. Speaking to an oral historian documenting Synanon's short history in 1962, Dietrich called it the most important single experience in my entire life, crediting the drug with unlocking a newfound confidence. He says, I became a different person, really and truly. Everything that has happened to me since Synanon, everything dates back to that point. It was then that he decided to form his own group that, unlike AA, embraced all kinds of addicts. He first called this group the Tender Loving Care Club. One day, a young heroin addict named Whitey Walker, fresh out of prison, joined the group. As he invited friends, the language grew a little bit coarser, a little less loving. The crosstalk became more aggressive. It took on a totally different feel. Dietrich loved it. The sessions became known as synonyms a portmanteau of symposium, or togetherness, or perhaps seminar, and anonymous. Dietrich, who provided couches for people to crash on as they kicked heroin and any other habit that they were trying to detox from, would come to believe that addicts weren't full-fledged adults and shouldn't be treated as adults. The younger addicts took to calling him dad. Based on these sessions, the Tender Love and Care Club evolved to be just called Synanon. Synanon was launched in a dingy Santa Monica storefront as a two-year residential program, but Dietrich soon concluded that its members could never graduate, because a full recovery was impossible, according to him. The program was based on testimony of fellow group members about their tribulations and urges of relapsing and their journeys to recovery. Synanon differed from Alcoholics Anonymous in that it was directed towards both drug users and drinkers. Dietrich was said to have coined the phrase, today is the first day of the rest of your life, for the program. He was a stern person, kind of abrasive, not very friendly to the people around him. He believed that this tough love was necessary to achieve and maintain sobriety and use that with his first wave of residence. So if you were registering to go to rehab at Synanon, here's what would happen. First off, the program rejected any form of pharmaceuticals or tapering off of drugs. Everyone went cold turkey and junkies were left on a couch to weather their withdrawal and detox alone. For their first 90 days in the community, members were expected to completely cut contact with everyone they knew outside. Sound familiar? I thought so. During its first decade, Synanon members entered into a one- to two-year program in three stages, aimed at preparing them to re-enter greater society. This would soon change. During the first stage, members did community and housekeeping labor. 
During the second stage, members worked outside of the community, but still resided within the community, going to meetings and being a part of the culture. Finally, during the third stage, members both worked and lived outside, but still attended regular meetings. But really, the benchmark of the treatment was called the game. You'd play the game, which was this bizarre group therapy where people sat in a circle to express and often shout their frustrations at each other. This confrontational approach was a way to hash out everything that bothered you about others in your group, but was couched in a way of helping them, learning about yourself, etc. The game started with a question, like, the most boring person in this circle is, or what really pissed you off most this week? You know, something provocative, but not too out there. But then it would escalate. While playing the game, the stuff you said didn't even need to be true. Lying was just one of the many things that were allowed in the game, which could last anywhere from one hour to 48 hours. Later on, it would be known as attack therapy and was the first step of Dietrich's grooming and brainwashing for what was to come. Many of Sinanon's Santa Monica neighbors weren't happy to have a rehab in their midst, so the Sinanon residents were outcasts early on. Some of the treatment was rooted in stigma. Others, you know, treatment by the neighbors felt pretty legit. In 1961, Dietrich spent just under a month in jail for zoning violations and operating a hospital without a license. He was guilty on both counts. I can absolutely see how neighbors might find that questionable. All of this legal stuff that got in the way of these treatments and rehabilitation only served to bond the Sinanites, and elevated Dietrich to this kind of martyr status, suffering unjust incarceration for his beliefs, etc. And the media latched on. They loved this story. Early on, the Los Angeles Times ran a two-part feature on the group. The Los Angeles Mirror published a four-part series. A 14-page photo spread in Life magazine, hailing Sinanon as a tunnel back into the human race, was followed by a glowing write-up in Time magazine. It's a lot of very good press. In the early 1960s, Sinanon used this momentum to get in with Hollywood. Guest speakers in 1963 alone included Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling, Ray Bradbury, and the original host of The Tonight Show, Steve Allen. Visitors included Leonard Nimoy, Jane Fonda, Charlton Heston, Milton Berle, Timothy Leary, and Cesar Chavez. Sinanon had some pretty cool parties, too, because they had so many jazz musicians enrolled in the program. Dietrich insisted recovery rates were anywhere from 80 to 100%, though those figures were never confirmed by well, anyone. Some observers claim that fewer than 70 people in Sinanon's entire existence, of the thousands who sought treatment, could reasonably have been claimed as rehabilitated. But again, it's hard to say considering the program's founder claimed there is no such thing as rehabilitation, and that staying with the organization is the only true path. 1965 was a big year for Sinanon. A film was made about it, starring Academy Award winner Edmund O'Brien as Dietrich himself, and it was even filmed on location in Santa Monica with the full cooperation of the whole organization. Maybe more notably, Sinanon started quietly buying up land in Marin County, California. It would eventually have three sites in the county, comprising just over 3,300 acres in total, making it the largest private property owned in the county. Dietrich made it quite clear early on that treating addicts was merely a byproduct of his larger mission. Sinanon's real aim was to create an experimental society that would transform the world. To Dietrich, Sinanon was a new way of living, as important as any to the world's major religions. With the help of Hollywood and being a registered religion, and of course its million-per-year sales of promotional items, Sinanon expanded and was almost normalized as much as AA in California. In fact, juveniles in the justice system were often ordered to enroll in Sinanon by California courts if they had some kind of substance abuse issue. In 1967, Sinanon also purchased a gigantic new building in Santa Monica called Club Casa del Mar. 
First built as a hotel in 1926 and then used by the U.S. Army during World War II, the building sat on an insane part of Santa Monica Beach. Now it's a hotel again, and you can even stay there. Uh, the rooms range from, oh, just $700 a night to $1,600 a night. At this point, Dietrich himself abandoned Santa Monica, moving north. Synanon was so in style that even non-addicts wanted in. They were reluctantly allowed, called lifestylers, and by 1967, Synanon broadened its mission to include research into the causes of alienation and delinquency. These lifestylers were allowed to have jobs outside of Synanon and live outside of Synanon's community, provided they gave most of their income to the organization. This experiment with lifestylers wouldn't last long, though, as this type of member was often accused of not being committed enough. Most lifestylers washed out of the program, though some joined the ranks fully, leaving their homes behind as a show of true solidarity. After starting in 1968 with just 40 people, by now it had 823 active members and some incredibly expensive new headquarters. It was bringing in roughly $1.2 million from its various businesses, including gas stations and a manufacturer of branded promotional items. By 1976, it would gross $8.7 million, with estimated assets of over $30 million. Let those numbers sink in. We're going to take a break. It looks like summer might be almost normal. And with that, people will be getting out for long overdue vacations. For me, I'm looking forward to getting back into an actual movie theater. And as usual, playing Best Fiends like crazy. It's that little summer refreshment. And my perfect go-to when I need a break from researching true crime and the paranormal. Best Fiends is the perfect travel companion or that much-needed break. You can take Best Fiends with you everywhere. Collect more of your favorite cute characters while you're waiting for that movie to start. Or soak up a little more sun as you try to defeat just one more challenging level. I'm at level 650, and Best Fiends has over 5,000 levels. So the fun is endless. Every time you play, there's always something new to experience. Make the most of your summer downtime and spend some time with your favorite fiends. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store and Google Play for free today. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hello. How are you doing? Are you well? We're. This is the check-in. This is it. <laughs> Welcome to the check-in. This is all you got. This is all you're going to get. No, you have. You just listen to previous episodes and do those check-ins. Yeah. You can just binge the check-ins. Yeah. Just keep checking in. Ugh. That won't. That I'm won't. sorry. Don't that, do that. Will that help? Probably not. No, no. 
we're probably the only podcast that tells you not to listen to the podcast. Yeah, it's really it's a good business model. Or is it some kind of sick reverse psychology Whoa. mind games? Psychological manipulation. Warfare. No, they're like, no, we're happy not to listen. Yeah, they're like, like, no, just shutting it off. Bye. We want to say hello to everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all the patrons and to our government. That's right. We have the mayors. Dar Rosenzweig. Hello. Joshua Lambert. Hi. Ashley Matson. Hello. James Harrington. Hello. And our governor. Yes, governoress. I always what's the female governor? No. That's I don't right. see political positions. Sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. Avian Noble. The one and probably only. I can't imagine there's another na- Avian Noble out there. <laughs> no. If okay. if there is Destroy. <laughs> Destroy yeah. the competition. Mm, yeah. Unless, unless they listen to this podcast, then no. Then no. Keep them, we'll keep preserve them, you. Keep them around. Your namesake. Well, we are back with some Apple podcast reviews. Uh-oh. Got a little threefer. Not reefer. Threefer Madness? <laughs> I love that movie from the 1930s. Where they're like, uh, it, but it's, it's like where the parents are just like, they're like, she's like, no, it's not drugs. She's like, no, but it's Apple podcast reviews from Ghost Town. We hate that. And there's that. like it's rings banned. around their eyes. Like, yeah. woo. Enjoyable and informative. Five stars. Great hosts that cover a wide variety of spooky and weird stuff. Highly recommended. And that's from Aussie 16. From Great Britain. My favorite podcast. Five stars. Whoa. Love ya. Rebecca and Jason caused me to laugh out loud. Their banter is so witty and intelligent, and the <laughs> podcast is unique and fun. The bad reviews baffle me, but that must be what keeps them so down to earth. <laughs> this is my favorite podcast and has been for a while. This is from Eliza E. Art in the U.S. Plus A. Oh, my God. I love the use of they cause me to do this. <laughs> that like, makes me laugh so much. Ignore the trolls. Five stars. <laughs> I'll never, I can't ignore the trolls. I look forward to every new episode. Don't change the format regardless of what the trolls post. You two are so different. Tell us how you got together for this podcast. That is from know. JB in Minnesota. And you guessed it, US and A. Not everyone who doesn't like the podcast is a troll. I, you know, some people might be just looking to antagonize maybe or, uh, you know, just looking to, I don't know. Cause havoc, maybe a little. But th- what I mean, I don't see a lot of the trolling if it is there. But leaving an Apple podcast review isn't trolling. It's. I just- think it depends on the nature of some of the reviews. Depending, I think maybe, I don't know, with that one from Podbean where the person was talking about the QAnon stuff, kind of just. Oh yes, it's a little troll. It's a little. It depends on you know your point of view on what what is uh, trolls, but. Yeah. Listen, we'll take the support. Yeah. I think any platform that invites you to leave a review doesn't feel like trolling to me, but that was that Podbean one was legit nuts. And if you want to hear bonus episodes, ad free, no chit chat, just getting straight to the good stuff, hmm. you can go to patreon.com slash ghost town pod and it helps it helps the show out you know we're maybe looking to expand some of the help with getting podcast equipment where the podcast microphone isn't directly in front of the laptop so i can Mm. both 
talk into it and then also look at the computer monitor at the same time. Just oh, things like that. If that's oh what, if you're wondering where does the where does the money go, and there's every month they pay you know pay for certain uh, equalizing and podcast refining. Mm-hmm. software and stuff like that and it just yeah. you know it, it all helps keep the lights on and and thank you to anyone and just merely listening leaving a review sharing it somewhere is also extremely helpful yes i thought you were gonna say if you want to when you were gonna plug the patreon i thought you were gonna say if you want to hear olympic coverage like for some reason my brain went there <laughs> yeah, yeah. i don't know why that was but someday i hope you'll have olympic com- coverage and we should have some a new documentary episode out soon we're, we're oh, yeah. due for that one i think we're just trying to decide in which one i just watched woodstock 99 and we did that episode and maybe that maybe that'll be the next one we don't yeah know. we don't know i'll i'll check it out we don't uh, know i'll uh check it out i also have a friend who was there and i'm gonna try to get her to send a little thing my ex-girlfriend was there is my friend your ex-girlfriend um her name was fred durst i don't know is that the same <laughs> It was Fred Durst. Holy shit. Yeah. So. Right, we're both going to get Fred Durst on the line. Maybe a little extra info. At the end of the 1960s, the group was becoming even more isolationist, with Dietrich declaring that it would no longer graduate any of its members. So you would just stay. What little pretense the group had about helping addicts to rejoin the outside world had been dropped. By 1972, Synanon was a completely drug-free environment, save for aspirin, caffeine, and LSD. Lots and lots of LSD. In 1974, Synanon moved to become a recognized religion within their use of LSD. It was running up against some controversy, obviously, with that, but also some other issues, including uh, some IRS recognition of the group because it really wanted to maintain its tax-exempt status. It didn't work, though. The IRS never officially recognized Synanon as a religion, though it would be at least another decade before it finally stripped the company of its nonprofit status. The nonprofit status was key. It's what helped people give donations. It's what got it its whole financial footing. At the same time, Synanon moved from nonviolent tactics within its treatment to violent ones. Suspected spies were severely beaten. Teenagers sent to Synanon to help cure juvenile delinquency were regularly physically abused for insubordination. Everyone in the group started shaving their heads. Says Phil Ritter, who entered the Bay Area branch of Synanon, there was a lot of drugs around, a lot of negativity. He sold his car, moved into the eight-story Synanon building in downtown Oakland, shaved his head, a practice that had begun as punishment and a way to haze newcomers, but he was becoming more or less part of the norm. In fact, many Synanon members would appear with shaved heads as extras in George Lucas's dystopian science fiction film THX 1138. Working as a mechanic at a Synanon-owned auto repair shop, he made $50 a month. People moved to the northern compound if they were truly dedicated. Children inside the Synanon cult were raised communally. This was a common practice romanticized by utopian communities of the 19th and 20th century. Dietrich was also becoming less interested in having any children around, telling many members that if they wanted to have kids, they probably shouldn't be a part of it. I understand it's more like crapping a football than anything else, Dietrich would say about childbirth in 1976. By January of 1977, no kids was the official policy. Men were pressured to get vasectomies, and women were shamed into getting abortions. Notably, Dietrich didn't get a vasectomy himself. Chuck Dietrich had a wife, too. Her name was Betty, during this whole time. Betty was actually very well-liked. Betty was a strong woman in her own right. She was well-liked, and she seemed to dial back some of Chuck's tyranny. But on April 19, 1977, she died of lung cancer, and all bets were off. Dietrich's policies became even more insane, extreme, and controlling. Dietrich, who was at this point 64, 
also wanted to remarry right away. He says, I set up a flare like any monarch of old times would have done. I let the word out I was available. Of the six women who applied, Dietrich chose Ginny Schroen, a 31-year-old teacher at one of Sinanon's schools. Shortly thereafter, though, Dietrich decided that marriage should no longer be permanent. Couples were told to split up and form new three-year-long love matches. Within days, he split, he broke up his own daughter's marriage, and about 600 couples were divorced by the following year, including a man named Phil Ritter and his wife. By the late 1970s, Synanon had support from over 200,000 businesses and organizations giving to or interacting with Synanon by the late 1970s, including one out of every five corporations in the Fortune 500 who were listed either as donating or as doing business with them. Synanon had a private security force and formed a paramilitary group, the Imperial Marines, that developed its own type of martial arts called Sindo. And by 1978, the group's reported purchase of over $200,000 in firearms raised eyebrows. In 1978, Phil Ritter, our old friend Phil, the guy whose wife left him at the rule of Dietrich, would try to take his young daughter from the organization and nearly died doing it. Ritter's wife was still in the organization and had moved with her child to Synanon's Detroit facility. Ritter sought legal action against the cult, and in response, the church sent two men to beat him senseless in his own driveway. He wound up in a coma for a week. Press and organizations started seeing how dangerous Synanon had become. Most press was bad press, but the group fought back. After an expose by NBC in 1978, members sent hundreds of ominous letters to the NBC executives threatening physical harm. Synanon sued anybody who wrote a critical article or aired a negative TV segment about it. In 1972, it sued Hearst Corporation over a San Francisco Examiner article that described the cult as, quote, the racket of the century. The most famous incidents of the organization's violence was a planned attack by Synanon on a Los Angeles lawyer. Attorney Paul Morantz had successfully represented a woman who had been held against her will by Synanon. Morantz came home on October 10, 1978, to his house in the Pacific Palisades, opened his mailbox, and was immediately bitten by a rattlesnake with its rattle removed to keep it quiet. His neighbors called an ambulance just in time, saving his life after a quick and extensive treatment with anti-venom. Two men, 20-year-old Lance Kenton and 28-year-old Joseph Musico, were charged with attempted murder along with Dietrich for conspiring to commit it. Dietrich also had an obsession with recording audio, which didn't help when cops procured six tapes weeks later. Here's a part of the audio. Our religious posture is, don't mess with us. You can get killed dead, literally dead. These are real threats, he snarled. They're draining life's blood from us and expecting us to play by their silly rules. We make the rules. I see nothing frightening about it. I'm quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next break his wife's legs and threaten to cut their child's arm off. This is the end of that lawyer. That is a very satisfactory, humane way of transmitting information. I really do want an ear and a glass of alcohol on my desk. All three men were arrested, and Dietrich was drunk, by the way, during this arrest, and pled no contest. Dietrich entered into a plea deal that included probation. Part of the plea deal was that he would have to step down as the head of Synanon. So Synanon was formally stripped of its tax-exempt status in 1991 and almost completely disbanded shortly after that. Phil Ritter eventually reunited with his wife and daughter after they left Synanon in 1978. Morant still lives in Pacific Palisades. At age 72, he has neuropathy, arthritis, and blood disease he believes may have been an artifact from his snakebite attack. I'm going to set the record, he says, for the longest murder ever. After being convicted, Dietrich moved with his wife into a double-wide mobile home in Visalia. He died in 1997, a few weeks before his 84th birthday. He was saluted on the floor of the House of Representatives by the Bay Area Congressman and future Oakland Mayor, Ron Dellums. 
Despite its controversies and its downfall, though, the Synanon program is credited with curing some people of their addictions, including jazz musicians Frank Rehack, Arnold Ross, Joe Pass, and Art Pepper, and the actor Matthew Beard. In 1972, Pass formed a band composed of Synanon patients who recorded an album titled Sounds of Synanon. Many former members still value what they see as positive aspects of Synanon, primarily its strong sense of community. They remain in close contact with many of the people that they went through the program with, online chat groups, and some have even gone into business together. A branch of Synanon that was founded in Germany in 1971 is still in operation. And that is Synanon, which still exists. It's the same old story. Yeah. It's the same story. Beginning, middle, and end they differ a little bit. Some don't have an end, uh, but they all, you know, you notice when the tax exempt status, everything else kind of falls. So you wonder, yeah, they need that money. It's, you know, it's not about the money, but it it really is about the money. And it's interesting that it's a group that's founded on about fighting addictions when it seems like the addiction to power, Mm -hmm. wealth being feared being a leader, being looked up to, pretty much getting everything you want. You're, you're getting rewarded, you know, because all these companies are, are donating. You got celebrities that are involved kind of signing off on this. Yeah. So it's just interesting that how intoxicating it must be to be a leader. And that, and then why you did it almost doesn't matter. It's like, oh, now we'll just, these constantly switch gears and that becomes the thing. Yeah, absolutely. I the snake story, the snake in the mailbox, I thought was a Scientology story for a very long time. And I think that really speaks to the fact that like so much of this behavior is I mean it's horrible, but is interchangeable with these abuses and in these cults and religions, whatever, you know, I you can classify it however you want to. Um, but it's just really scary because it never feels like it ends. It's just another one pops up and then another one you know, another one preying on people. Also, really getting a start in the 1950s really primed itself for that time of the 60s and 70s and new age and and people being accepting of things that are kind of, you know, outside of the box thinking where it's this is okay, these, you know, communities and look at all the good that it's doing. But, you know, it's. It's, you know, you're being controlled for better or for worse, I, I suppose. I guess it depends on who you ask. And mm. would it end up being like another, you know, Waco? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, when you start God. buying up – and it always starts with with military and buying up weapons. And yeah. it, it's not like, and this is where we stop. No. It's it's really this is where we start. Exactly. Exactly. And, I, yeah, I don't want to discredit the people that actually found benefit in this program. Yeah. But it's such a small part – it feels like of the larger abuses and toxicity of this person. Yeah, I don't group. understand how how um, being only having three year love matches. How does that? How does that help? You know, how does having yeah. firepower help? How is how does this this guy? I mean, obviously he was drinking. If he was drunk, this so yeah. All that stuff went out the window. So you can there's a point where you can be like, well, this is no longer a tenant of this thing. Yeah. So if it helps someone. That that is great, but that there's a cutoff point for that. It wasn't. It didn't seem to be the you know the mo of of the organization became very secondary. It seems. Yeah, absolutely. Although I I will say I don't like cults, but I do want to stay in that hotel.
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.